mic on. Hey there, ladies and gentlemen. This is Joseph speaking. And on this episode, I'm going to present to you... Mic off. minutes remaining mic off mic on patriarchs and prophets the title is mic off mic on the title is mic off Mic on. The division of Canaan. So here we go. Mic off. Chapter 48. The Division of Canaan. This chapter is based on Joshua 10, verses 40 to 43, chapter 11, and chapters 14 to 22. The victory at Beth Horon was speedily followed by the conquest of southern Canaan. Joshua smote all the country of the hills and of the south and of the vale. And all these kings in their land did Joshua take at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, unto the camp at Gilgal. The tribes of northern Palestine, terrified at the success which had attended the armies of Israel, now entered into a league against them. At the head of this confederacy was Jabin, king of Hazor, a territory to the west of Lake Merom. And they went out, they and all their hosts with them. This army was much larger than any that the Israelites had before encountered in Canaan. Much people, even as the sand that is upon the seashore in multitude, with horses and chariots very many. And when all these kings were met together, they came and pitched together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Again a message of encouragement was given to Joshua. Be not afraid because of them. For tomorrow about this time will I deliver them up, all slain, before Israel. Near Lake Merom he fell upon the camp of the allies and utterly routed their forces. The Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who smote them and chased them until they left them none remaining. The chariots and horses that had been the pride and boast of the Canaanites were not to be appropriated by Israel. At the command of God the chariots were burned, and the horses lamed, and thus rendered unfit for use in battle. The Israelites were not to put their trust in chariots or horses, but in the name of the Lord their God. One by one the cities were taken, and Hazor, the stronghold of the Confederacy, was burned. The war was continued for several years, but its close found Joshua master of Canaan, and the land had rest from war. But though the power of the Canaanites had been broken, they had not been fully dispossessed. On the west the Philistines still held a fertile plain along the sea coast, while north of them was the territory of the Zidonians. 
Lebanon also was in the possession of the latter people, and to the south toward Egypt the land was still occupied by the enemies of Israel. Joshua was not, however, to continue the war. There was another work for the great leader to perform before he should relinquish the command of Israel. The whole land, both the parts already conquered and that which was yet unsubdued, was to be apportioned among the tribes. And it was the duty of each tribe to fully subdue its own inheritance. If the people should prove faithful to God, he would drive out their enemies before them. And he promised to give them still greater possessions if they would be but true to his covenant. To Joshua with Eliezer the high priest and the heads of the tribes, the distribution of the land was committed, the location of each tribe being determined by lot. Moses himself had fixed the bounds of the country as it was to be divided among the tribes when they should come in possession of Canaan, and had appointed a prince from each tribe to attend to the distribution. The tribe of Levi, being devoted to the sanctuary service, was not counted in this allotment, but forty-eight cities in different parts of the country were assigned the Levites as their inheritance. Before the distribution of the land had been entered upon, Caleb, accompanied by the heads of his tribe, came forward with a special claim. Except Joshua, Caleb was now the oldest man in Israel. Caleb and Joshua were the only ones among the spies who had brought a good report of the land of promise, encouraging the people to go up and possess it in the name of the Lord. Caleb now reminded Joshua of the promise then made as the reward of his faithfulness. The land whereon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance and thy children's forever, because thou hast wholly followed the Lord. He therefore presented a request that Hebron be given him for a possession. Here had been for many years the home of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and here, in the cave of Machpelah, they were buried. Hebron was the seat of the dreaded Anakim, whose formidable appearance had so terrified the spies, and through them destroyed the courage of all Israel. This, above all others, was the place which Caleb, trusting in the strength of God, chose for his inheritance. Behold, the Lord hath kept me alive, he said, these forty and five years, even since the Lord spake this word unto Moses. And now, lo, I am this day fourscore and five years old. As yet I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now, for war, both to go out and to come in. Now, therefore, give me this mountain, whereof the Lord spake in that day. For thou heardest in that day how the Anakim were there, and that the cities were great and fenced. If so be, the Lord will be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. This request was supported by the chief men of Judah. Caleb himself, being the one appointed from this tribe to apportion the land, he had chosen to unite these men with him in presenting his claim, that there might be no appearance of having employed his authority for selfish advantage. His claim was immediately granted. To none could the conquest of this giant stronghold be more safely entrusted. Joshua blessed him, and gave unto Caleb the son of Jephunneh, Hebron, for an inheritance, because that he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. 
Caleb's faith now was just what it was when his testimony had contradicted the evil report of the spies. He had believed God's promise that he would put his people in possession of Canaan, and in this he had followed the Lord fully. He had endured with his people the long wandering in the wilderness, thus sharing the disappointments and burdens of the guilty. Yet he made no complaint of this, but exalted the mercy of God that had preserved him in the wilderness when his brethren were cut off. Amid all the hardships, perils, and plagues of the desert wanderings, and during the years of warfare since entering Canaan, the Lord had preserved him. And now, at upwards of fourscore, his vigor was unabated. He did not ask for himself a land already conquered, but the place which above all others the spies had thought it impossible to subdue. By the help of God he would wrest his stronghold from the very giants whose power had staggered the faith of Israel. It was no desire for honor or aggrandizement that prompted Caleb's request. The brave old warrior was desirous of giving to the people an example that would honor God and encourage the tribes fully to subdue the land which their fathers had deemed unconquerable. Caleb obtained the inheritance upon which his heart had been set for forty years, and, trusting in God to be with him, he drove thence the three sons of Anak. Having thus secured a possession for himself and his house, his zeal did not abate. He did not settle down to enjoy his inheritance, but pushed on to further conquests for the benefit of the nation and the glory of God. The cowards and rebels had perished in the wilderness but the righteous spies ate of the grapes of Eshcol. To each was given according to his faith. The unbelieving had seen their fears fulfilled. Notwithstanding God's promise, they had declared that it was impossible to inherit Canaan, and they did not possess it. But those who trusted in God, looking not so much to the difficulties to be encountered as to the strength of their almighty helper, entered the goodly land. It was through faith that the ancient worthies subdued kingdoms, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness, were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 33 and 34. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. Another claim concerning the division of the land revealed a spirit widely different from that of Caleb. It was presented by the children of Joseph, the tribe of Ephraim, with the half-tribe of Manasseh. In consideration of their superior numbers, these tribes demanded a double portion of territory. The lot designated for them was the richest in the land, including the fertile plain of Sharon. But many of the principal towns in the valley were still in possession of the Canaanites, and the tribes shrank from the toil and danger of conquering their possessions, and desired an additional portion in territory already subdued. The tribe of Ephraim was one of the largest in Israel, as well as the one to which Joshua himself belonged, and its members naturally regarded themselves as entitled to special consideration. Why hast thou given me but one lot and one portion to inherit? They said, seeing I am a great people, but no departure from strict justice could be won from the inflexible leader. His answer was, If thou be a great people, 
Then get thee up to the wood country, and cut down for thyself there in the land of the Perizzites and of the giants, if Mount Ephraim be too narrow for thee. Their reply showed the real cause of complaint. They lacked faith and courage to drive out the Canaanites. The hill is not enough for us, they said, and all the Canaanites that dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron. The power of the God of Israel had been pledged to his people, and had the Ephraimites possessed the courage and faith of Caleb, no enemy could have stood before them. Their evident desire to shun hardship and danger was firmly met by Joshua. Thou art a great people, and hast great power, he said. Thou shalt drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots, and though they be strong. Thus their own arguments were turned against them. Being a great people, as they claimed, they were fully able to make their own way, as did their brethren. With the help of God they need not fear the chariots of iron. Heretofore Gilgal had been the headquarters of the nation and the seat of the tabernacle, but now the tabernacle was to be removed to the place chosen for its permanent location. This was Shiloh, a little town in the lot of Ephraim. It was near the center of the land and was easy of access to all the tribes. Here a portion of country had been thoroughly subdued so that the worshipers would not be molested. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of the congregation there. The tribes that were still encamped when the tabernacle was removed from Gilgal followed it and pitched near Shiloh. Here these tribes remained until they dispersed to their possessions. The ark remained at Shiloh for three hundred years, until, because of the sins of Eli's house, it fell into the hands of the Philistines, and Shiloh was ruined. The ark was never returned to the tabernacle here. The sanctuary service was finally transferred to the temple at Jerusalem, and Shiloh fell into insignificance. There are only ruins to mark the spot where it once stood. Long afterward its fate was made use of as a warning to Jerusalem. Go ye now unto my place which was in Shiloh, the Lord declared by the prophet Jeremiah, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it, for the wickedness of my people Israel. Therefore will I do unto this house, which is called by my name, wherein ye trust, and unto the place which I gave to you and to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 12 to 14. When they had made an end of dividing the land, and all the tribes had been allotted their inheritance, Joshua presented his claim. To him, as to Caleb, a special promise of inheritance had been given. Yet he asked for no extensive province, but only a single city. They gave him the city which he asked, and he built the city and dwelt therein. The name given to the city was Timnasera, the portion that remains, a standing testimony to the noble character and unselfish spirit of the conqueror, who, instead of being the first to appropriate the spoils of conquest, deferred his claim until the humblest of his people had been served. Six of the cities assigned to the Levites, three on each side of the Jordan, were appointed as cities of refuge to which the manslayer might flee for safety. The appointment of these cities had been commanded by Moses that the slayer may flee thither 
which killeth any person at unawares. And they shall be unto you cities for refuge, he said, that the manslayer die not until he stand before the congregation in judgment. Numbers chapter 35, verses 11 and 12. This merciful provision was rendered necessary by the ancient custom of private vengeance, by which the punishment of the murderer devolved on the nearest relative or the next heir of the deceased. In cases where guilt was clearly evident, it was not necessary to wait for a trial by the magistrates. The avenger might pursue the criminal anywhere and put him to death wherever he should be found. The Lord did not see fit to abolish this custom at that time, but he made provision to ensure the safety of those who should take life unintentionally. The cities of refuge were so distributed as to be within a half-day's journey of every part of the land. The roads leading to them were always to be kept in good repair. All along the way, signposts were to be erected, bearing the word refuge, in plain, bold characters, that the fleeing one might not be delayed for a moment. Any person, Hebrew, stranger, or sojourner, might avail himself of this provision. But while the guiltless were not to be rashly slain, neither were the guilty to escape punishment. The case of the fugitive was to be fairly tried by the proper authorities, and only when found innocent of intentional murder was he to be protected in the city of refuge. The guilty were given up to the avenger, and those who were entitled to protection could receive it only on condition of remaining within the appointed refuge. Should one wander away beyond the prescribed limits and be found by the avenger of blood, his life would pay the penalty of his disregard of the Lord's provision. At the death of the high priest, however, all who had sought shelter in the cities of refuge were at liberty to return to their possessions. In a trial for murder, the accused was not to be condemned on the testimony of one witness, even though circumstantial evidence might be strong against him. The Lord's direction was, Whoso killeth any person, the murderer shall be put to death by the mouth of the witnesses. But one witness shall not testify against any person to cause him to die. Numbers chapter 35, verse 30. It was Christ who gave to Moses these directions for Israel, and when personally with his disciples on earth, as he taught them how to treat the erring, the great teacher repeated the lesson that one man's testimony is not to acquit or condemn. One man's views and opinions are not to settle disputed questions. In all these matters, two or more are to be associated, and together they are to bear the responsibility that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Matthew chapter 18, verse 16. If the one tried for murder were proved guilty, no atonement of ransom could rescue him. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Ye shall take no satisfaction for the life of a murderer, which is guilty of death, but he shall be surely put to death. Thou shalt take him from mine altar, that he may die, was the command of God. The land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. Numbers chapter 35, verses 31 and 33. Also Exodus chapter 21, verse 14. The safety and purity of the nation demanded that the sin of murder be severely punished.
Human life, which God alone could give, must be sacredly guarded. The cities of refuge appointed for God's ancient people were a symbol of the refuge provided in Christ. The same merciful Savior who appointed those temporal cities of refuge has, by the shedding of His own blood, provided for the transgressors of God's law a sure retreat into which they may flee for safety from the second death. No power can take out of His hands the souls that go to Him for pardon. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Who is He that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us, that we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 34, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. He who fled to the city of refuge could make no delay. Family and employment were left behind. There was no time to say farewell to loved ones. His life was at stake, and every other interest must be sacrificed to the one purpose, to reach the place of safety. Weariness was forgotten, difficulties were unheeded, the fugitive dared not for one moment slacken his pace until he was within the wall of the city. The sinner is exposed to eternal death until he finds a hiding place in Christ, and as loitering and carelessness might rob the fugitive of his only chance for life, so delays and indifference may prove the ruin of the soul. Satan, the great adversary, is on the track of every transgressor of God's holy law. And he who is not sensible of his danger and does not earnestly seek shelter in the eternal refuge will fall a prey to the destroyer. The prisoner who at any time went outside of the city of refuge was abandoned to the avenger of blood. Thus the people were taught to adhere to the methods which infinite wisdom appointed for their security. Even so, it is not enough that the sinner believe in Christ for the pardon of sin, he must by faith and obedience abide in him. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27. Two of the tribes of Israel, Gad and Reuben, with half the tribe of Manasseh, had received their inheritance before crossing the Jordan. To a pastoral people, the wide upland plains and the rich forests of Gilead and Bashan, offering extensive grazing land for their flocks and herds, had attractions which were not to be found in Canaan itself, and the two and a half tribes desiring to settle here had pledged themselves to furnish their proportion of armed men to accompany their brethren across the Jordan, and to share their battles till they also should enter upon their inheritance. The obligation had been faithfully discharged. When the ten tribes entered Canaan, forty thousand of the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh, prepared for war, passed over before the Lord unto battle to the plains of Jericho. Joshua chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. For years they had fought bravely by the side of their brethren. Now the time had come for them to get unto the land of their possession. As they had united with their brethren in the conflicts, 
so they had shared the spoils. And they returned with much riches, and with very much cattle, with silver, and with gold, and with brass, and with iron, and with very much raiment, all of which they were to share with those who had remained with the families and flocks. They were now to dwell at a distance from the sanctuary of the Lord, and it was with an anxious heart that Joshua witnessed their departure, knowing how strong would be the temptations in their isolated and wandering life to fall into the customs of the heathen tribes that dwelt upon their borders. While the minds of Joshua and other leaders were still oppressed with anxious forebodings, strange tidings reached them. Beside the Jordan, near the place of Israel's miraculous passage of the river, the two and a half tribes had erected a great altar, similar to the altar of burnt offering at Shiloh. The law of God prohibited on pain of death the establishment of another worship than that at the sanctuary. If such was the object of this altar, it would, if permitted to remain, lead the people away from the true faith. The representatives of the people assembled at Shiloh, and in the heat of their excitement and indignation proposed to make war at once upon the offenders. Through the influence of the more cautious, however, it was decided to send first a delegation to obtain from the two and a half tribes an explanation of their conduct. Ten princes, one from each tribe, were chosen. At their head was Phinehas, who had distinguished himself by his zeal in the matter of Peor. The two and a half tribes had been at fault in entering, without explanation, upon an act open to such grave suspicions. The ambassadors, taking it for granted that their brethren were guilty, met them with sharp rebuke. They accused them of rebelling against the Lord, and bade them remember how judgments had been visited upon Israel for joining themselves to Baal Peor. In behalf of all Israel, Phinehas stated to the children of Gad and Reuben that if they were unwilling to abide in that land without an altar for sacrifice, they would be welcome to a share in the possessions and privileges of their brethren on the other side. In reply, the accused explained that their altar was not intended for sacrifice, but simply as a witness that, although separated by the river, they were of the same faith as their brethren in Canaan. They had feared that in future years their children might be excluded from the tabernacle as having no part in Israel. Then this altar, erected after the pattern of the altar of the Lord at Shiloh, would be a witness that its builders were also worshippers of the living God. With great joy the ambassadors accepted this explanation, and immediately carried back the tidings to those who sent them. All thoughts of war were dismissed, and the people united in rejoicing and praise to God. The children of Gad and Reuben now placed upon their altar an inscription pointing out the purpose for which it was erected, and they said, It shall be a witness between us that Jehovah is God. Thus they endeavored to prevent future misapprehension and to remove what might be a cause of temptation. How often serious difficulties arise from a simple misunderstanding, even among those who are actuated by the worthiest motives. And without the exercise of courtesy and forbearance, what serious and even fatal results may follow? The ten tribes remembered how, in Achan's case, God had rebuked the lack of vigilance to discover the sins existing among them. Now they resolved to act promptly and earnestly, but in seeking to shun their first error, they had gone to the opposite extreme. Instead of making courteous inquiry to learn the facts in the case, 
they had met their brethren with censure and condemnation. Had the men of Gad and Reuben retorted in the same spirit, war would have been the result. While it is important on the one hand that laxness in dealing with sin be avoided, it is equally important on the other to shun harsh judgment and groundless suspicion. While very sensitive to the least blame in regard to their own course, many are too severe in dealing with those whom they suppose to be in error. No one was ever reclaimed from a wrong position by censure and reproach. But many are thus driven further from the right path and led to harden their hearts against conviction. A spirit of kindness, a courteous forbearing deportment, may save the erring and hide a multitude of sins. The wisdom displayed by the Reubenites and their companions is worthy of imitation. While honestly seeking to promote the cause of true religion, they were misjudged and severely censured. Yet they manifested no resentment. They listened with courtesy and patience to the charges of their brethren before attempting to make their defense, and then fully explained their motives and showed their innocence. Thus the difficulty which had threatened such serious consequences was amicably settled. Even under false accusation, those who are in the right can afford to be calm and considerate. God is acquainted with all that is misunderstood and misinterpreted by men, and we can safely leave our case in His hands. He will as surely vindicate the cause of those who put their trust in Him as He searched out the guilt of Achan. Those who are actuated by the Spirit of Christ will possess that charity which suffers long and is kind. It is the will of God that union and brotherly love should exist among His people. The prayer of Christ just before His crucifixion was that His disciples might be one as He is one with the Father, that the world might believe that God had sent Him. This most touching and wonderful prayer reaches down the ages even to our day, for His words were, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on Me through their word. John chapter 17, verse 20. While we are not to sacrifice one principle of truth, it should be our constant aim to reach this state of unity. This is the evidence of our discipleship. Said Jesus, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. John chapter 13, verse 35. The Apostle Peter exhorts the church, Be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil, or railing for railing, but contrariwise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Well, folks, this completes the recording. Till next time, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.